the path to happiness, to fulfillment, to sustainable health is not linear. It's more of like this crazy scribble. So when I don't reach my goals, it's not a failure. There is always shadow work to be done. A professional athlete for years, pressure, competition, strict routines, and high expectations were woven into Elisa's life. A World Cup athlete, she was primed and ready for the Olympics, but placed one spot short of qualifying. She calls this her Olympic failure. Welcome to The Safe Haven. I'm your host, Amanda Lytle. The Safe Haven offers a collection of conversations about life's challenges and the pivots that we make in order to keep moving forward. This life-shattering moment sent Elisa into a downward spiral, a very unhealthy one at that, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. It was her personal rock bottom that brought her face to face with what she needed to do next in order to climb out of this hole that she was in, associated with being a failure. A loss of sense of self, unhealthy habits, a toxic relationship that became a marriage, and some really deep self-discovery, Elisa shares her journey navigating identity and aligning values with her life experiences to design a life she loves. We jump into the conversation today where Elisa is telling us about her most definitive failure. The very first time that I actually felt my connection to my belief systems was after my Olympic failure in 2006. So I, my whole life, I wanted to go to the Olympics. Like even as a child, I thought I was going to be a gymnast because of my lack of flexibility. That dream was crushed at the age of eight, (laughs) but, um, I had used those skills. I made the national Canadian freestyle mogul team in 1998. I competed on, yeah, I competed on world cup for eight years and I was tracking to go to the Olympics in 2006. Now the pressure that I had put on myself and the skills that I had to handle, not only handle that pressure, but to recognize and take responsibility for my actions in the moment were so weak. Weak's not a good word. We're so limited, I should say. And I choked. I choked at every single Olympic qualifying event. Now I was ranked second in Canada. I was the second best female mogul skier in Canada And I was the fifth best mogul skier in the world in, uh, in 2006 during the Torino games. Hmm. However, I did not go to the Olympic games because I choked at every qualifying event. And that day I can remember long story short, I needed to have a top 12 finish to go to the Olympics. Top 12 for me was like a piece of cake on any given day. I ended up placing 13th, oh. so one one position shy, and it was a life-shattering moment for me. I could feel, I saw all the work of my entire life slipping through my fingers, and I was lost. Mm-hmm. I, I was lost for words. And my identity as an Olympian, as a Canadian national champion, all the labels I had given myself and had prepared myself for in that moment were completely gone. And I was lost. There was nothing left. There was literally nothing left for me to, to feel in my body. I became numb. 
that experience looking back, I still, I'm actually 15 years later, this, this happened 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. I still feel that energy, that surge of the moment where I lost my identity as an Olympian. That is massive. I feel like when you had even mentioned that you were quote unquote, an almost Olympian, having had friends Mm -hmm. that have competed in some mega sports, there's so much pressure to succeed, not only that you've put on yourself, but the others on you. Did you experience that too? And, and did you feel that not only were you letting yourself down, but like an entire team? Absolutely. And I mean, it is an individual sport, mogul skiing. However, it's a really interesting thing you just touched on there because yes, I worked with professional staff, mm-hmm. strength and conditioning coaches, mindset coaches, technical coaches, physical therapists, uh, nutritionists, like the roster is huge. And all at that level, you have, you are expected to show up and do what these people say and trust. It's almost like this blind faith that you are putting in someone else. So even when things didn't feel right for me, I came from the belief, like as a, as an athlete growing up, going up the ranks, that someone else knew better for me than I knew for myself. So I would trust these professionals and they were molding me into this thing, this, I don't like to call it robot, but in many ways it was like this high functioning, high performance robot. I was so regimented and scheduled. And when I woke up, I didn't even think the muscle memory and the everything was just there. I had done so much repetition of the technical skills. I was like on this crazy diet. We were working out like crazy. We were traveling time zone, time zone, world cup, world cup pressure, you know, like mm-hmm. mess ups, failures, accomplishments, winning. Like I stood on top of the podium at a world cup. I'm a world cup gold medalist. And I even, I devalued that because it wasn't an Olympic qualifying event, that particular event. So yeah, that was okay, but it wasn't in the box that I was conditioned to live in. So it's a really interesting thing. The team that you trust to to get you somewhere, it's really interesting what happens when you don't reach that destination as an athlete. That team just fizzles away, like it was crickets. The day after I missed qualifying for the games, There was nobody there. In fact, and I talk about this with compassion in my heart now. I know people were doing their best. Mm -hmm. I know people were doing what they thought was right for the the, the teammates and for the program. But I was, at the time, I didn't understand that. And I couldn't, I don't want to say deal, but I couldn't see what was actually happening in front of me. But I was put on a boat. We were in Italy, by the way. That The qualifying event was in a ski resort called Madonna, Italy. (laughs) And they put me on a bus at 1 a.m., drove me to the Milan airport. I got off the bus at 5 a.m. without a ticket to go home. I had to buy my ticket when the ticket counter opened. It cost over 2000, it was 2,158 Canadian dollars for a one-way ticket back to Ottawa. Thank God I had a credit card. And, and that was that. I, had, I did not hear back from one of my support staff until after the Olympic Games almost 16 days later. How did you navigate being alone after feeling such a defeat? Mm-hmm. Well, going looking back to that time, it 
the, the biggest element that I can take away from that was that loss of identity, how I had put all of my marbles into this label, into this concept, into this one experience, to be honest, because like I, I recognize that a lot of Olympians, once the Olympic Games is over, that they're lost. They don't know how to navigate their lives post Olympics. Mine just happened 16 days earlier and it was a dark place. It was a dark time. It was Nobody I had I knew personally had ever gone through a loss to that. I don't want to say degree because we we all experience different levels of grief when we lose things. But I didn't understand the concept of grieving a failure mm-hmm. or perceived failure, grieving the loss of a goal or achieving a goal. I always associated grief to losing a loved one or someone dies or you know, an animal passes or, or something of that nature. It took me a long time to navigate out of that. And we're talking years. I held on to that, that pain and that suffering and inevitably started to identify as a failure. And I started to enjoy when people felt sorry for me and enjoy when I got negative, sad, pity party style attention. That became something I sought after because that was just all the dialogue in my brain. I was pulling people into my life who saw me as a victim and would, and I would honestly, looking back, manipulate people into helping me because Mm -hmm. I was a victim. Mm -hmm. So the days immediately following were very dark. I I actually uh, was living with my mom. I went back to her house. I spent, I think, 10 days in a dark room crying. Uh, I started to drink alcohol. I was smoking cigarettes. We're talking high performance athlete here, smoking a pack a day, drinking like six to eight drinks a day, eating all the pasta. I made a vow that I was never going to do a squat again. I wouldn't be caught dead going to the gym. I like basically rebelled against all of that conditioning that I had been exposed to over my eight years as a national team athlete. And kind of like, instead of empowering myself and learning, I swung the pendulum all the way to the opposite end of the spectrum and basically like gave up on life and thought that that was going to make me happy and that that was the solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the process of doing that, I gained 85 pounds in one year. I got into a very abusive, neglectful relationship. I ended up marrying this man and got into the most financial debt that I could ever even imagine. Like, I can't even believe Mm -hmm. (laughs) what happened. And it was all at the time I just was looking for an escape. I did not want to take responsibility. I blamed my coaches. I blamed my team. I blamed everyone for taking this away and not giving me what I needed. And like, it's humbling to look back. I have a very different space when I look back at that and I can see it from a very different lens. I look at it as now that I've sort of grown out of that and pivoted out of that, the entire process, everything that happened was this little girl crying for help and feeling like 
nobody had her back. The little girl in me was hurting so hard. Yeah. I wanted to swing back to the awareness that you have looking back. So the awareness that you've acquired mm-hmm. over the years since to now to yes. look back at the victim mentality that you had, the cries for help, just that feeling of helplessness mm-hmm. as well. What yeah. an awareness. So I, I, I just I wanted to really touch back on that because I feel like where you're at now, being able to look back and see where you've been and acknowledge those patterns and look back with compassion. You're right. I mean, you have to have compassion for the people that were in the space that you were in Mm -hmm. as that, you know, like you say, that surrounding team of who you were, but also for yourself because you didn't have the tools to move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I didn't have the tools to move forward. I wanted someone to do the work for me. I didn't want to take responsibility for myself in that dark place. What ended up happening was I woke up one day and I looked at myself in the mirror and I did not recognize the person looking back at me. I did not recognize my face and a voice inside of my head said, Elisa, what the fuck are you doing? Mm -hmm. And I was like, what am I doing? I almost took offense to it. But it was just this awakening. It was just this moment where I heard a voice that didn't speak necessarily in words. It said that line, but it wasn't, it was a feeling of, okay, it's time. It's you're ready. Mm -hmm. It's time. Mm -hmm. So it was in that moment that I started to see and accept. It was an accepting of what happened. I acknowledged that this had happened And in that acknowledgement, I created some space. And in that space, I was able to have clarity with what I actually wanted in my life moving forward. I sought out and worked with a spiritual coach who really taught me the practices of awareness. And it's not to be aware of what you did. It's to be able to observe your thoughts and your beliefs without judgment. It's the ability to reflect on your habits and behaviors, see what you're doing and assess whether that is working towards your goal or not towards your goal. And it's not like we're always like going towards a goal. I am very goal oriented. That's a skill that I acquired very young as an athlete, but I use the term goal very loosely now in my life because the path to happiness, to fulfillment, to sustainable health is not linear. It's more of like this crazy scribble. So when I don't reach my goals, it's not a failure. There is always shadow work to be done. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If you were to think of three things that you bring forward into the work that you're doing now that you learned specifically from your time training for the Olympics, what do you think they are? One of the main skill that I learned as an athlete was discipline, Mm -hmm. discipline. And that discipline is a harsh word that a lot of people see it as working out really hard every day. (laughs) Discipline is not, is not that to me, to me, it is the ability to show up for my life at whatever energy level that I am in that day. For example, if zero is no energy and 10 is the most energy and the most motivated, whatever I need to assess where I am in the day let's say it's a four, I can show up to be a four. If the best I have is a six, then I will be a six that day. It's not, the scale is always going. So the discipline is in showing up for myself 
at that level where I'm at in the day. Another thing is that diet and exercise programs, nutritionists and fitness trainers are subjective. What they believe is the best for you is not necessarily the best for you. Extreme dieting, extreme fitness, right now it is, it's all marketing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is there in place to manipulate you and the diet culture views of uh, self-care have been manipulated so much to make money. It's mm -hmm. a business and it is not the best form of self-care. And that goes within my clients and my personal life, just so we're clear. The last thing is that putting all of your marbles into one outcome is a slippery slope. It is playing the lottery. Sometimes it works out freaking amazing. However, it would be wise to be mindful of your actions while you're doing this and really take a good hard look as to is this actually what I want mm -hmm. and, and pay attention without judgment. Okay. That makes me super curious about what kinds of personal practices you have or that you implement into your day or into your routines that help yeah. you maintain some sort of equilibrium in your life? Uh, yeah, great question. So honestly, again, it's a sliding scale. It depends on how I can show up for myself in the day. So I pay attention to my energy and I honor that. There is a space that goes against the hustle and the doing and the word success to be a successful person that I am constantly bringing myself back to. And I meditate on it and I sit with that energy because it is not in, like, I do not want to be in that box. I am more than that. So I always have to remind myself that the messaging of this is what it takes to be happy. Thinness equals happiness. Wealth equals happiness. Success, job, money, all of those things. I keep having to check, check in. So that is part of my self-care practice. In fact, it's a huge part. So it, every morning I do a meditation, whether it's one minute of closing my eyes and saying, clear my mind, clear my mind, clear my mind over and over again for an entire minute. Or if it's, you know, to a guided meditation, to sitting for 10, 15, 20 minutes, I run. Running is one of the things that I love to do. It is an activity that I fell in love with after my experience uh, as an athlete. I mean, we would run, but it was always so fast. And like, you have to be the fastest and the best. I took running as uh, more of a jogging approach. And I really love that lower impact. Um, I practice Ayurveda, a lot of Ayurveda practices. I really ground myself to the earth. I have my own garden. I am mindful when I'm grocery shopping and I select food that I find to be good quality whole foods that resonate with me in that moment. Does it mean I don't eat the Oreo? No, it doesn't. It means that I appreciate the food and where it comes from. I look for ways to give back to Mother Earth. I'm conscious about my plastic use, about my energy use, about flicking the lights off. I have hard conversations with myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I write stuff down when I have ideas. I write things down. I make sure to give myself creative space to be creative and to use my imagination because our imaginations are where the world, where our soul is filled. I've heard this before and someone somewhere 
talked about the soul and how the soul doesn't care about the latest iPhone and about the material things that are coming out. The soul wants connection. It's not one dimensional. It's it's about looking up at the stars at night. It's about grounding your feet in the sand, feeling the ocean, going out, getting fresh air every day. Fresh air is a massive part of that for me. And this, all of the things that I have just said are practices that took me years to appreciate, years to be grateful. And it took me a long time to understand my privilege, the privilege that I have to be able to do these things. Mm -hmm. And that is part of it as well. That's really good. So I will say this when it comes to privilege, just to kind of broad statement where I'm at with that. The ego, the voice inside of our head, the judge and the victim, it shows many faces. It always wants to be superior. The ego is is in a constant flow of being superior versus inferior. The second you feel inferior, you will do whatever you have been conditioned or trained to do to feel superior, whether that's through manipulation, whether that's through toxic positivity, putting someone down, gossiping. There's a list of things that we do, you know. When it comes to privilege and really understanding and seeing your privilege in the world, my privilege specifically in the world as a white size 10 female with blonde hair who lives in a beautiful home in a great relationship with two cats and food on the table every day, that requires not just one action. That requires action every single day to silence the voice of the ego and open the, the box to see that my world, my, my ego in this world is very small. It is extremely small. So my privilege has kept me in a very small box. Now to open that box and to see, it requires action every single day. I really appreciate that. I appreciate your awareness and acknowledgement of your privilege. Thank you for that. Oh, yes. I have three safe haven style questions for you. Okay, ready. <laughs> What are you most proud of? Oh, shoot. What am I most proud of? Okay, I am most proud of my ability to show up every day. Yeah. What would you like to be known for? I would like to be known for as a person who inspires those around her to take a deeper look into their conditioning and domestication in this life. Ooh, good one. And if you had a message for everyone listening, what would it be? <sighs> one, just one. <laughs> Can I give you 35,000? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you are beautiful. You are worthy and you matter. Oh, I love this. Where can people find you on social media? So uh, I connect mainly on Instagram. So my handle is at Elisa Curry Lowitz. You can uh, do the spelling. Yeah, I'll link <laughs> uh, it. In your show. 
Okay, you'll like it? Okay, cool. At Alisa Curry-Lowitz. I also have a really fabulous Facebook group. It's called the Alisa Unfiltered VIP Lounge, where I chat with lots of people, men and women of all ages. We do challenges. We do really fun things um, there. And my podcast is Alisa Unfiltered Living Life Out Loud. And you can listen to that anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was awesome. Elisa, thank you so much for joining me today on the Safe Haven podcast. I really appreciate your time and wish you all the best moving forward. To everyone listening, I recognize the privilege that comes with my platform, and I am committed to creating a safe, brave, and inclusive space with intention. If this episode has hit you right in the heart or inspired you in any way, please screenshot the screen while you're listening, send it to your friends, and share it in your Instagram stories please be sure to tag us at the safe Haven podcast so we can personally thank you for it. If you're able to write a review or leave a juicy five-star rating on Apple podcasts, that really helps this podcast grow for more great podcasts. Check out frequency and I will talk to you next week.